I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. I don't know about you, but most of my time in school did very little to foster my imagination. It tended to be viewed as though I had brought a naughty, troublesome friend to school with me, one not afraid to point out the absurdity of most of what we did and of how we did it. In today's education system, with its pressures from league tables, test results and uninspiring curricula, the imagination still struggles to be heard and valued. Fighting its corner, in Canada at least, is Gillian Judson. Gillian is a director of the Imaginative Education Research Group and a lecturer at Simon Fraser University. She's written many books on the topic of how teachers can bring imagination to the forefront of how they teach and has trained many to become more imaginative teachers. She has a particular interest in sustainability and in how vital it is to engage the body and emotion in learning. We chatted by Skype. I started by asking her what, for her, is imagination and why does it matter? People define it differently. And I, and I work against those people that define it as, you know, the imaginary. Fight, flights of fancy or the make-believe. I'm, I believe it to be much more in line with Vygotsky's vision of imagination, which is that it's at, it's at one of the core intellectual activities of human beings. It's at the base of all science, science and engineering. It's not something that we can solely associate with the arts because it is the ability, here's, I finally get to my definition, it's the ability to envision the possible because we need knowledge to envision what is possible. And so without imagination, we don't, we don't learn, we don't engage. Um, why do we need it? Why do we need it in schools? Because when you engage imagination, you wake up emotion. And we've known, any educator knows that you need to emotionally engage your students in order for them to have meaningful learning experiences. And there is research out of um, University of Southern California with Dr. Mary Helen Imordino Yang, most recently, she's an affective neuroscientist who says, emotion is at the helm. I love that analogy because it directs all of our learning. The things that you most remember and understand have affected you. So we have to talk about feelings. And when you engage a human emotion, when you tie it up with a piece of knowledge, then it becomes memorable and meaningful. So that is why we need imagination. We need to evoke those emotions that help us envision the possible um, with the knowledge in the curriculum. I, I'm not discounting social emotional learning needs. That is another whole dimension. Um, we need for students to feel safe and comfortable. But what, what we're all about on Imagine Ed is helping teachers use tools, cognitive tools, that will tie up that knowledge about fractions with human emotion, igniting imagination and making the, the thing all the more enjoyable. You could tell your colleague or friend or ex-friend <laughs> that dreary <laughs> isn't necessarily better. I mean, we can live a dreary life. We can put through the hours in schools and get enough knowledge to pass a test, but maybe we can have students that are inspired. Education that inspires is what we're after, I think. So that's why. <laughs> and you mentioned about feeling safe. I wonder what else, uh, if, if you were to uh, create a list of the, of the prerequisites or the ideal conditions for a, 
for a vigorous, engaged, healthy imagination, what would those conditions be? Oh, great question. I mean, we can look at, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Our, our children need to be fed and they need to be loved and they need to feel safe and they need to feel, they need to feel that the world is wonderful. They need to be surrounded by people that see the wonder in the world around them. Um, so if, if, there's, if their ne basic needs are met and they are in a condition in a comfortable community of learners where where the teachers and the students there they share the emotional connection to knowledge then and they're given space in their learning to envision possibilities in different directions than their teachers initially imagined they would um, then I think you have some of the basic conditions in place and how would you both within education and within the wider Western world um, assess the state of health of our collective imagination in 2018? How's it doing? Well, it's, I certainly wouldn't test for it. I mean, we like to throw tests at school to determine the quality of our schools, and I don't think standardized tests do much to show the quality of a school. But I would like to look at the questions that our students are asking. I'd like to look at the kinds of programs we're offering and the, um, the, the values that underlie them. Are we hoping to have great questioners and students that have feel like the world is wonderful? Are we looking for students that are desperate to get out of school or ones that realize that they've just begun their learning, their learning journeys? So the, it depends. I mean, the, the people that in the world that seek comfort in quantifying things may not appreciate my answer but if we look at the quality of the questions the the interest the engagement of the students are they talking about what they're learning once they've left school are they looking at things related to topics in school when they're on their own time are they initiating conversations with their teachers in different directions than the teacher intended so I'm talking about students in terms of our cultures I think I think we have a long way to go because I think that, I know that imagination is at the core of any, any attempt to empathize and, and accept other cultures. We can't, we can't empathize with another. We can't embrace another kind of understanding of the world unless we have the ability to envision the possible. So it's at the core of all, I think, what we need in this world is the ability to, to understand another's perspective. And I don't think we can ever fully understand it, but we can't get even part way without imagination. Mm -hmm. So do you think that, that, that we live in a time when, when the structures around us, when the society around us gives imagination enough attention or enough respect or enough space? Well, what's interesting, Rob, is that I think we all jump on that bandwagon for imagination for children. And we talk about how play is important for children. And then we're not comfortable talking about how play is important for adults, how play is necessary in learning. And Stuart Brown has a book called um, Play, how it um, opens the mind, or I think it shapes the brain, opens the imagination and invigorates the soul or something. But it is a, play is a basic human activity, learning activity. So we don't like to talk about it. Similarly with imagination. When I, when I work with adults, they prefer to ask me about innovation and creativity. They don't like using the word imagination. So I think we have to rethink about 
I'd like to say reimagine, but we need to, to expand what we consider imagination to be because we undervalue it in our society. We absolutely undervalue it. Um, even saying somebody is imaginative, he's a very imaginative person versus he's an innovative person. We tend to think that the innovative one is more successful somehow, but imagination <laughs> underlies the innovative. Yeah, which, which of those two are you going to pay more? Right, because we're, we're identifying, we're, we're, we think the innovator is imaginative, but we, we still associate imagining, imagining ideas and doing nothing with them. And that's not what I'm talking about at all. Mm -hmm. um, I sent you uh, the link to the interview that we did with Manish Jain in India. And yes. In that interview, he said, the education system is part of the problem. One of the purposes of it is to destroy people's imaginations it has been a big culprit in limiting what people's imagination have been filling them with a lot of fear as well i wonder if you had any thoughts about um do we need is 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 trying to bring imagination into mainstream schools trying to put a sticking plaster on something that is is inherently uh designed to destroy the imagination should we be looking just at building completely alternative, like unschooling approaches like he uh, does? Or do you think that, that there is the potential to make conventional education as imaginative as it needs to be? I think he, he I love <clears throat> that interview with him. I love what he's saying there. And I appreciate the political and economic implications of a system that limits change, you know, by limiting imagination. From, from my own experience, I would like to talk a bit about the pedagogical background because I absolutely think that we're in a system that disregards and neglects imagination for a reason. Because, for example, the way we design and think about units and lesson plans is based on a model for building refrigerators, which you know, I'm sure, um, being in this field. But the, the great influencer in education, Ralph Tyler, took the model that Frederick Taylor created for increasing time and efficiency in industrial steel plant. If you reduce the, the process of building a refrigerator into distinctive portions and you determine at the end quality control, if your initial image matches the end, then you can reduce time and motion and increase efficiency. Well, Ralph Tyler thought this was a fantastic idea for thinking about how we should teach because if you have an outcome and you break that outcome down into very distinctive measurable pieces then at the end you can assess with a test whether you're whether the kid knows the x number of things about fractions if it matches he gets an a if it doesn't he gets a b and what have you and that is really appropriate in a in a society that values the language of business we talk about bottom lines we talk about productivity and efficiency and I'm not opposed to those things, but we don't teach refrigerators. We teach human beings, and human beings are, as you've seen from my little blurb, my uh, little TEDx, we're perfinkers. We perceive and we feel and we think. And feeling, as we know, is vital for learning. So what I'm, in, what I'm attempting to do, and it's not as revolutionary as unschooling school, because I think we have a lot of good things happening in schools. But I, everyone that knows me and works with me, we don't start our teaching by letting the, the, the outcomes drive our decision making. We have our outcomes, but then teachers need to, and this is pedagogical blasphemy, they need to decide how they're engaged with the topic. 
So any, anyone in the field is, you know, you can't be anything but student-centered. Well, I don't think we can be student-centered unless we are also engaged with the topics we're teaching. So teachers need mm -hmm. to identify the emotional significance of the topics they're teaching. I was never taught that in my teacher training. And I would bet that the vast majority of educators aren't either. They're taught to break it down efficiently and logically, the topic they want to teach. They should use some kind of a hook, which I think is a terrible way to think about imagination. I picture these a fish on a hook, you know, flopping around. Really, imaginative education, um, engaging imagination centrally is more like a hug. We're, we're creating a context. So when they're learning about fractions, their emotions are being engaged all the way through. So when they learn that theorem, it's connected to a human emotion that makes it more meaningful and memorable. So within our current system, we have to deal with the mentality of industrial mentality, kind of efficiency, productivity language. That's what we need to dismantle. But I think we can replace it with um, a genuine acknowledgement of the emotional dimensions of all learning. And that's what these cognitive tools are that Kieran Egan discusses in his work. Uh, cognitive tools centrally guiding instruction, pre-K through higher education, will bring imagination to the center of the practice. And, and how's, how's that being received? I mean, what's the, what's the reaction within the kind of education world to, 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 to what you and Kieran and others have been bringing? Well, the, the people we've been working with, and we've been running master's programs for many years, so there's a lot of people doing this, and our imaginative education research group is very large around the world. He's been traveling and writing prolifically for a long time. People hear it, and they say, yes, this is, I know this. If you ask a teacher what it's like when they're doing a unit or a lesson and their students are engaged, we, that's what it's all about. But it's about making those moments more, more frequent. Mm. So every teacher I talk to says, when I say, is there something you teach that you look forward to teaching? You know the students are going to be right in there. You know, they're, you know there's fewer disciplinary issues because everyone's in it, they're on it, they're loving it. Absolutely, they say. And then I say, no, you do things you just have to get through, right? You just got to get through that. Well, yes, of course. And, and well, let's make that just get through it unit more like the ones we love to do. And we start by saying, okay, if it's punctuation or if for passe composé in French, whatever it is you're teaching, if you're not engaged with it, if you can't find something about it that is wonderful, odd, strange, unique, somehow to engage human emotion, you're not going far. And universally, I hear that. But what I also hear, and this is funny, this is when we get down to the underlying beliefs and values, right? Is people say, well, I wholeheartedly believe you, I just don't have time. I don't have time for it. And I say, well, do you have time to spend a week on something and they don't learn anything at all? Do you have time for that? We, we, there is no learning without the emotional connection. So the people that say, I, I'd like to do that, or I'd do that if it was grade eight, but I can't do that in grade 11 science. You know, we have too much we have to get through. Then we're dealing with very different underlying beliefs and values about the time we're spending. Because one of Kieran's lines is, you could, it takes just as long to be boring as it does to be interesting. Mm -hmm. We think we're being efficient when we get the worksheet down and we say, do this and practice it 100 times. But what if we took that theorem first, embedded it in, in the context of the human's hope, fears, and passions that created it, creating that imaginative context for the learning first, and as we go through, continue to employ the different tools to engage learners. So 
very well received. Most people nod, yes, this is, this is what I do when I feel like I'm doing my best teaching. How does the, one of the people that I interviewed recently, well, two of them actually, who wrote a book called The Distracted Mind, all about the impacts that particularly smartphones are having on young people and their ability, well, on everybody, on young people and their ability to, uh, to concentrate. Um, and I wonder if, if you're seeing the impact of that in the classroom and the impact that that has on, on people's ability to be imaginative. I, I think, you know, as a parent as well, I, I worry about the distraction. And that's one of the things I'm working on in my eco, imaginative eco teaching, is how do we bring back more of that, uh, as deep ecologist Arna Nays talks about, is engagement through activeness, through pause, through immersion in our environments, because we're far too distracted. How do we learn to live attentively. If you've heard of Emma Kidd's work, it's, it's lovely. It's for focusing in on the moment. Now, um, I think that one of the problems with the media, social media in any form, is that we feed all of it to the students. We don't often leave them any space or time for imagination, for their own images. So we, we in all contexts, argue rather than providing an image of a concept or something fantastic, first evoke it. Use words to help it arise in students' minds first. Because you couldn't, can live the, leave them an image or provide them with an image, but it, does, it often then prevents them or discourages them for coming up with their own image of what that concept means. So we would, I can't speak for everyone in the IERG, that's the Imaginative Education Research Group, but I would suggest that we have to um, spend time allowing them to create their own ideas and concepts and the media onslaught of images and ideas and the excitement of those. People say, you know, you're in this game world for a while and you come out in the world here, out real world looks a little less vivid. It's not quite so bright and beautiful. So we have to somehow preserve that sense of wonder in the world around us. And that's what educators that are imaginative educators using cognitive tools do. They try to minimize the losses of the tools that engage us most as children, keep employing those tools as we go along so we, we graduate with those strong. And um, uh, one of the things that I, I wonder about is, is, the, is the implications of, of what you're talking about for uh, for movements, activist movements like climate change, social justice movements, you know, that we're trying to, we're trying to fundamentally um, sort of get alongside people to enable them to imagine the future in a different way, because business as usual is going to kill us all. So we have to imagine something other than business as usual. And it's fundamentally, for me, is it, is a project of the imagination. And, and if people's imagination muscle has been weakened uh, through their education, through their work life, through their home life, through social media, whatever, whatever, whatever. Mm. And their attention spans are in shreds. How do we, what, uh, what, are there any insights from, 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 from your work and your research about how, for example, if you were to design a, a campaign, a project that was about getting people really involved in doing something about climate change, imagining the future in a different way, bringing a kind of perfinka mm -hmm. approach to activism, what might that look like? That's a great question. And I know exactly what you're, 
your fears are there, your concerns, because um, if we can't, it's the worry is, you know, if you can't get charged up for climate change in 23 seconds or, you know, fewer seconds, then, then I'm, I'm not on board. Well, one thing is, I would argue that imagination is limited. A lot of people like to say that it's limitless. In fact, we can only imagine with knowledge. We can only imagine with what we know. We only can imagine a unicorn because we've seen a horn and a horse. We can't, you know what I mean? So one aspect is we need broad depth of knowledge. We can't imagine these futures without um, real breadth and depth of knowledge. So one thing we're implementing in schools here, just an aside, is called the Learning in Depth Project learning and depth program. And it's simple, but it's kind of revolutionary. And it, it's part of this need to feed in and really feed the imagination. And it, ideally, when, when it starts, early in, early-ish in school, students are provided um, uh, randomly a topic. It could be mollusks, it could be transportation, it could be, I don't know, apples. And they're given an hour a week to study it for the rest of their schooling. Not just one year, not a month, but this is their learning in depth program. So once a week, everybody's doing learning in depth. It's assessed, but it's not graded. Students share out their understanding as they go along at the speed at which they need to go in any direction they wanna go. But the hope is, is after, I mean, after year one, it's quite superficial. We've got students now that have been doing it for five, six years, and their depth of knowledge is different. And it's, it's they, in, Many people would say you'd be bored of the subject by then, but those students that have been at it for five years, they know enough to know they're actually, would only be bored of it if they didn't know enough. We tend to get bored of things we don't know a lot about. So I think one thing is we need to provide students with an opportunity to have depth of knowledge, real depth of knowledge and expertise about something. They will end up realizing that the world's knowledge, it's all connected. And some say, well, I wanna study hockey. Well, actually, you drew the topic of mollusks. So you can figure out a connection between hockey and mollusks. But the, it's a different take because it's not graded. Students are free to go in any direction they want. How does the teacher keep on top of it all? Well, the teacher requires progress. You know, they want to see things are moving in whatever direction. And the teacher can support students by using these cognitive tools, encouraging them if they wonder, what should I study next? Well. Ask them if they've found any song lyrics to do with the topic. Ask them if they've ever found a, um, the most odd, extreme, or bizarre aspect of the topic. Ask. There's always ways to support them through engaging imagination. So go back in, to your question about what do I envision, you know, the future of activism. We need students that are comfortable with inquiry. They're comfortable with inquiry. They see themselves as able learners without being told and graded that they're able learners. Um, I think it needs to be a collective activity because some of the interesting work now in, um, you know, in online learning and how people are learning through these big massive online gaming systems, it certainly is nothing like the traditional teacher-student kind of relationship. It's learning through experimentation and it's learning through collective growth and, and built-in rewards and things. So we need to think of ways to collectively move forward in our activism collectively and with imagination and that i mean if i'm if i've just said you need knowledge to be imaginative that's why we sort of need the collective because we come with different areas that's my short answer yeah, <laughs> that was I, short. <laughs> something i read that i can't remember who it was who 
who was talking about that research where they asked people to draw uh, creatures from another planet and then they they all had eyes and legs and they all had exactly. and but there was a lovely thing where someone said uh there are no gods who only exist on wednesdays like <laughs> you know we draw from all the same stuff um one of the one of the things i've asked everybody who i've interviewed has been if you had been elected as the president of canada and you had run on a program of make Canada imaginative again. If you had, if your policy platform had been, it is fundamentally important to the survival of this place and its culture and everything that we maximize people's capacity for imagination at all levels in, in work, in business, in education, in home life, in urban planning, in economics, in everything. What might you do in your first hundred days in office? Well, I would get everybody outside. <laughs> I would. Yeah. I, I, that's one of my user hashtags is get outside. I think we're like literally and figuratively, we're bounded in our thinking. We think schools should look a certain way. We think teaching practices should look a certain way. We think teacher training should look a certain way. We don't, um, one of my most exciting projects now is, is, is a walking curriculum. You might've seen it when you found the other book. It's just that idea that we need inquiry focused, place-based routine activities that help us see the world as wonderful. So I would say that I would organize, if I could do anything I wanted, I would get everybody involved in some kind of collective outdoor activity not with the specific you know not with a sustainability or um, climate change initiative on it but just get people comfortable outside because I think we are missing a whole lot in what we can learn about this planet if we uh, stay indoors second thing I would do is I would um, change the whole system of teacher education in our country and I would also implement a system where there'd be sort of sabbaticals for teachers so that they can go back do graduate study and work and become experts same reason expertise in subject areas allows for greater imaginative capacity so we can go back and teachers have that freedom um, I would like different kind of collaborations between communities and schools so I would like to re and reimagine not only how we structure it but what school means to people. Um, I'd like, I'd have you heard about the living libraries? Where yeah. rather than signing out a book, you sign out a person. So if, if I came to you and asked you to be part of the next initiative in 2019, then people could sign up to talk to you, Rob Hopkins, and say, and that's the library, because we're embedding the knowledge and, and all the great things you've done. I loved your, the TEDx you sent me, by the way, that transition town, it's fascinating. Fascinated, but signing you out to talk to. So how do we humanize the knowledge? Because in my first hundred days, I'd have to convince people that fractions are wonderful and that osmosis is wonderful and the world is full of wonder. And I'd have to help them reconceive schooling because right now we think few say they don't like to learn. Most say school isn't their thing. So how do we reimagine schooling? And I'm not saying get rid of standards. I'm saying remember that human beings love to learn. We, yeah. we love to learn. And so that's probably a pretty standard answer about talking about school, but I think it matters. So 
I would, I would try to humanize, first of all, a lot of the things we take as sort of just, you know, words on a page. Hmm. Um, yeah, that was a big question. I don't think I did much of an answer on that one, but. Yeah, it's, if everybody goes, wow, hmm. There's, yeah, it was a slight, yours is a, a slightly less extreme version of one guy I spoke to who's the most amazing kind of mythologist guy. Yeah. And his thing was, I would turn off all the electricity for three weeks. So, so that people would have to experience the darkness, would have to experience the dark and would have to experience quiet. And I was like, nah. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think there would just be mass civil breakdown within about two days. But I can kind of see where you're coming from. If I was made, well, we prime minister, I guess, in Canada, truthfully, maybe I would run. I'd run. I'd try to escape. Not me, not me. Not me, no thank you. Yeah. Um, if 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 you were brought into a, to a school like there's many many young people's experience of education is profoundly unimaginative. The imagination they sort of hang it up on their peg of their coat when they arrive in the morning and maybe pick it up again on the way out. If you're brought into a school which is like that, where do you start? By 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 retraining the, the by retraining the teachers. I would oh immediately ask the teacher, you know, whatever they're teaching today. I say, what are you teaching next? You know, what are you doing in your next class with your students? So I'm, I'm doing, I don't know, the constitution or whatever. And I say, what's wonderful about that? What is, what engages your emotions about the constitution? Few can answer the question. Hmm. Well, no, I just have to get through that. Just get through the constitution and most of the rest of the month. And then I'll do this, which they like. Well, no, I, I, I really think you need to consider that because we would like teachers to envision that they're more like the reporter. You've been sent down to get the story on the Constitution, not create a fiction about it, but shape it in a way that engages the emotions of your students. And if you do that, you become a storyteller because you're shaping the knowledge, whether it's about exponents, the idea of exponents or three-dimensional objects. Um, whatever it may be, there's an angle. If you're a reporter, you could write about that thing in a way that people sort of went, ah, oh, interesting. So we don't do that in schools. That's my question to teachers. What engages you about the topic? <laughs>